Will you please pray with me? Now, Lord, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. Amen. Well, please be seated. And good morning. So we're coming into that uh, part of the journey I always enjoy after a long flight, which is they finally say we're coming in to land, right? The descent. We're coming into that part in our sermon series. We're into the last month or so as we come into land in our series. And you may remember if you were here way back in September that we began at the beginning of Scripture in our series with the creation of the world. And then we moved on quickly into the fall of mankind, into Noah and the flood, the call of Abraham and to be a blessing to the nation. Moses called to lead the Israelites out of slavery into the promised land right through to Jesus life and soon his death and his resurrection and to the early church and that's where we'll finish up but what we're seeing in all of this is that God has a plan and a purpose for mankind that he is what we call sovereign these events are not just thrown together randomly in a book and we are to make sense of them no these are events that he had planned and he had ordained to happen and we find ourselves today in perhaps the most pivotal few days of not just our series but at the whole of human history, which, remember, is his story, God's story, the story of his love for humanity and his rescue plan for mankind. And today we see Jesus take an event that we've already talked about, but that happened a long time ago. That's the Exodus, and he expands its meaning. Yes, he takes the most pivotal event in the history of Israel, and he redefines it for his purposes and for our benefit. And the context of our story is that it is the final week before Jesus' crucifixion. It's what we would call Holy Week. We're about to celebrate it next week. And uh, we're a bit out of order in our series, but as we'll see next Sunday, Jesus has just had his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey, as the people there hail him as a king. He's then spent time in the temple, at one stage upturning the tables of the corrupt money changers, but also debating with the religious rulers who become convinced that it is time to kill him and they need to do it quickly before retreating to Bethany. And then just before our reading today, Luke records that Judas, one of his 12 disciples, has agreed with the religious rulers to betray him in return for money. And so now we come to our reading for today, and I encourage you to take out the bulletin. If you have it, the scripture is inside, or use your Bible or your Bible app, or you can follow along on the screen right there. And we come to verse 7, where we read this. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Now, you may be wondering what the day of unleavened bread is, or what a Passover lamb is. And if you're not Jewish, that's a very legitimate question. The Feast of Unleavened Bread is a seven-day festival in the first month of the Jewish calendar, what we would know as March-April, somewhere around about then. And it celebrates the journey of the children of Israel through the wilderness, and uh, when they, following Passover and the Exodus, they eat unleavened bread for about 30 days which then is substituted by God for manna, um, food itself. And he provides that for them for the rest of their 40-year journey to the promised land of Israel. And in Exodus chapter 12, which we just heard Melissa read, God commands them to observe this feast every year. And so the Jews do this on and off, on and off, for over a thousand years. That's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. But what about Passover? Well, you're probably more likely to have heard of that. Passover is the oldest and most important religious feast in all of Judaism. And it also commemorates God's deliverance of the Hebrews 
uh, from slavery in Egypt, just like the Feast of Unleavened Bread. In particular, the night of the 10th plague, when the angel of death passes over all of the homes of the Israelites who've painted the blood of a spotless lamb on their doorframe. And they are, uh, the, it spares the lives of all their firstborn sons. The Israelites are then commanded to observe this feast, and they are to do this again throughout all of time. Well, Passover actually isn't a week or even a day, but it's actually a meal that's held the day before the Feast of Unleavened Bread. After all, Passover comes just before the Exodus and that, uh, when they eat unleavened bread. And so, just as the Israelites had done on that first Passover, over a thousand years before our gospel story today, a Passover lamb was still killed. But now it can't just be killed anywhere. It has to be killed in the temple of Jerusalem. And it can't be eaten anywhere. It has to be eaten within the walls of Jerusalem as well. Which brings us to the next part of our story. This is all about preparations. Verses 8 through 13, we read this. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house. The teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. So just like all the other Jews who've now crowded into Jerusalem, thousands and thousands of people there who wouldn't normally be there, preparations have got to be made for this final meal or for this meal. And for Jesus, there's something far more than mere ritual going on here. He's going to use this meal to teach his disciples a profound truth. And he's also going to teach anyone else who will listen in the years to come. Notice first though that Jesus has to be discreet. He knows that the chief priests and the uh, teachers of the law are out to kill him. And as we'll see in a moment, he also knows that even one of his disciples, one of his inner circle, is in on the plan. So he's very careful about who he tells and who he entrusts. He sends two of his disciples from his innermost circle, Peter and John, to carry out his carefully made plans. Well, everything goes according to Jesus' meticulous planning. And when evening comes, we find that they're all in this upper room and they're ready to share a Passover meal. But it's going to be a Passover meal like one they've never experienced before. In verse 14, And when the hour came, Jesus reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this, divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Does that sound familiar to anyone? I mean, I hope so, unless this is your very first Sunday ever experiencing a communion service, okay? I hope it does. Because this is the pattern for the second half of our service. We begin with what we call the liturgy of the word, and then we move into what we call the liturgy of the table, okay? The Holy Eucharist. And we follow this every Sunday. Now, 
And I'm not, I'm not going to get into a lengthy teaching about what, what happens to the bread and the wine in this moment with Jesus or in the moment when we reenact this each Sunday. You know, people ask, is it the real physical presence of Jesus on the table? Or is it the real spiritual presence of Jesus? Or are we simply just remembering what Jesus did or commemorating it? And depending on your denominational background, and trust me, I know there are a lot of denominational backgrounds in this room, you will each have a different answer for that question. But the classic and composition, in case you're interested, has been one of real spiritual presence. I have to be really careful teaching this because my wife is studying this right now. So she will correct me later if I get it wrong. And not only that, I've got Dr. Kendall Harmon sat right here as well. So this is dicey ground for me, but I'm more more scared of my wife than Kendall. So it's real spiritual presence is what they, what we would talk about, okay? That we receive the body and blood of Jesus on a spiritual level, not so much on a physical, that it's physical. And in the 39 articles, which you can read for yourself if you want, you find them in the back of a prayer book or just Google them. These are the historical defining statements of doctrine and practice for the Anglican Church. We read this. The body of Christ is given, taken, and eaten in the supper only after an heavenly and spiritual manner. And the mean whereby the body of Christ is received and eaten in the supper is faith. Now, if that sounds a little dense for you, there's also a well-known Anglican saying with regard to debate on the Eucharist. Just a short, short poem by a 17th century Anglican priest and poet, John Donne, who I love, and he wrote this. He was the word that spake it, he took the bread and break it. And what the word did make it, I do believe and take it. <laughs> Classic and composition. We'll give you an answer, but not really, okay? So remember that one, okay? And again, if that's not enough for you, Dr. Reverend Kendall Harmon has agreed to um, give a Q&A, a Q&A afterwards, if you'd like to stay, and tell you the real answer. Right, right Kendall? It's like, no. <laughs> Such lies. <clears throat> but we're glad you're here, Kendall. So now that's all settled, right, in a very Anglican kind of way, what I want us to focus on here is the world-changing event of seismic proportions that's taking place. Here what we're seeing is that the old te- uh, covenant of the Old Testament is being replaced by the new covenant. You see, while Israel is in a covenantal relationship with God, now there's going to be a new covenant, including not just the Israelites, but all people. And it will be brought about by the shedding of Christ's blood. Now, to anyone who knew the Jewish scriptures well at that stage, this shouldn't have come as a big surprise. If they had read the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 31, they would have read this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, and this is hundreds of years earlier, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers, on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Jeremiah is pointing the Israelites, he's pointing us to Jesus. And how Jesus' death is going to establish a new way to approach God. No longer external through external rituals, but internal, written on the heart. This new covenant is going to replace the sacrifices of the law and bring about a redemption affected by the death of Jesus as a sacrifice. As one commentator puts it, after this night, 
The Passover will now be filled with its full meaning. And from this year onwards, will signify to the people of God the deliverance of the profoundest kind from sin and death into eternal life. Moses' exodus will be fulfilled in Jesus' exodus. Yes, now the, the blood that, now the blood that's shed will no longer be that of a lamb and need be done over and over and over again every year. No, now the blood that's shed will be that of the lamb, the son of God, Jesus Christ, and will be done once and for all upon the cross so that all the, those who repent and believe in Jesus will be saved. His blood will pay for our sins forever. You may remember that in September 2013, international news was made when one of the most deadly terrorist attacks in history took place in an upscale mall in Nairobi, Kenya. Four al-Qaeda gunmen took the lives of 67 people and injured 200. And it was, by all accounts, a horrible disaster. But one story of the shooting ended up receiving particular media attention. It was the story of a young mother named Sneha Kotari Mashru. Sneha was at the mall having coffee with a friend when the gunfire began. And having dropped to the floor, she heard a cell phone going off near her. Well, not wanting the gunman to come any closer towards her, she reached under the person next to her to silence their phone. It was this point she realized that the man next to her was bleeding heavily. When I put my hand under him, that's when I realized that this guy had been shot because he was bleeding, she told NBC News. He was bleeding heavily. There was a lot of blood there. At this point, the woman made a difficult, life-changing decision. She decided to smear the blood of the man on her body in hopes that the terrorists would assume she was dead and they would pass over her body. And that's exactly what happened. Her grisly camouflage saved this woman's life. She said afterwards, I'd love to know who he was because I think his blood protected me, saved my life. His blood protected me, saved my life. It's a powerful image, isn't it? And it's a picture of what's happening in Jesus' death on the cross, a picture of what's happening in the Passover that's being celebrated, a picture of what we celebrate every Sunday when we gather around the table and we break bread and we share wine, sharing the body and blood of Jesus. His blood protects us and saves us. We are made right with God. A final brief thought on this passage, verses 21 through 23. Did you see that Jesus eats this meal in the presence of his betrayer, Judas? But not only this, from the Gospel of John, uh, that account of this meal, we know that Jesus washes the feet of this man as he arrives, tenderly getting down his knees, washing the dirt off of Judas' feet. Could you imagine doing that, knowing that he was going to betray you? Could you imagine sitting at the table eating, communing with him, talking with him, knowing that he wanted to have you killed. You see, Jesus doesn't just teach about the need to love our enemies. He puts it into practice. What humility, what restraint, what obedience. Oh, that you and I could be the same way. What a powerful witness to a world increasingly obsessed with self, excess, and even violence. So what does this mean for us today? What does it mean well, I think there are three things that we are called to do in response to what we hear. And there are three things that come out of this passage. 
The first one is we too are to prepare. We too are to prepare. And what do I mean? Well, while we do have folks who prepare the table for us each week, we call them the altar guild. I'm so grateful for each and every one of them who do that. What I really mean is that we need to prepare our hearts to meet with Jesus. And this is actually not just a, a few minutes that we do on a Sunday morning. It's something that's a week-long event. Beginning as we walk out of this door, we begin to pre- prepare for the next time we're together. And first of all, we begin by blocking out this time on our calendar, be it digital or be it paper. This hour or so each week is sacred time. Sacred time, friends. It's a time that comes before all other options in our lives. It's not just another leisure choice, fighting to find a place amongst brunch or sports or sleeping in or going to the beach or reading the paper or shopping or yardboard, whatever it might be. No, no. Hopefully, like the first check that we write each month from our monthly earnings, giving that to the Lord, this is the first hour of the week that we say, God, this is yours. It's sacred time. I will not let anything else distract me from coming together and remembering what you have done with gratitude but then secondly we also prepare through reading god's word we pray we share fellowship with other believers we fast we spend time in solitude we spend time in silence and we rest real rest sabbath rest all in preparation of meeting god in the sacrament of holy communion now i know that probably for you like me it doesn't always work out that way right Let's be honest. We're busy, we're stressed, we work too much, we rest too little, we give God a moment here or there, and we arrive on Sunday having overslept and argued with our family on the way, right? But these are things we can gradually work on and things that can change with the help of others and in the power of the Holy Spirit. But if we don't work on them, don't be surprised if your Sunday morning time of worship with the body becomes just another tiring chore for you to complete or a meaningless ritual that you participate in. But if we do, if we do prepare, what a difference. Commentator Charles Erdman writes, to those whose hearts are prepared, the unseen Lord is surely present and ready to speak through the appointed symbols and by his spirit, truths which will inspire strength and joy. So we prepare. And then second, we give thanks. You know, the Greek word used in this passage, whenever Jesus is said to give thanks, which is said a couple of times, is Eucharisto, from which, of course, we get the name of this service, Holy Eucharist. Yes, as we celebrate communion together, as we break bread and drink wine, we give thanks for all that God has done for us. This should be our primary attitude or posture in our worship, not groveling before him, not mourning but with grateful hearts coming with thanksgiving. And why? Because we are a people who are forgiven of our sins. What an incredible thing. And so much like the woman we heard of last week who washed Jesus' feet with her tears, we come thankful to God. Whatever the circumstances in our lives, and if you doubt this is possible, consider what Jesus is thinking about as he shares this Passover meal. He's about to be betrayed. He's about to be arrested. He's about to be falsely accused and condemned and beaten and spat upon, stripped naked, and then nailed to a cross to die. And yet, and yet he still gives thanks to his Father in heaven. It gives us an example of what it means to be thankful in all circumstances. Thankful for his grace. Thankful for his provision. Thankful that he will return one day. Thankful for the story of salvation he's been working out. Thankful that we're saved. And the list goes on and on. 
Yes, even if we too are facing betrayal, injustice, or even death, we can Eucharisto, give thanks, because our greatest need has been taken care of. We are made righteous by the blood of Jesus Christ. So we prepare, we give thanks, and finally, we remember. And the Greek word used here for remember is anamnesis, from which we get our word amnesia. And it seems really appropriate, doesn't it? Because Jesus knows just how quickly we forget. How quickly we forget. It only takes me about a week or so to start forgetting who I am in him, that I am made in his image, dearly loved by him, and forgetting what it is that he has done for me. Friends, we need to gather and remember him weekly if we want to be fully sustained as disciples in this world. So each week, prepare give thanks and remember. In the Eucharist, we are reminded of God's deep, deep love for each and every one of us. And as I heard Kendall say on Wednesday at our Lenten series this week, quoting St. Augustine, God loves every one of us as if there's only one of us. God loves every one of us as if there's only one of us. This is the truth of the gospel and the one that we'll celebrate today as we Eucharist together. Will you respond by giving him your heart today and accepting the gift of forgiveness he gives to all who repent and believe in him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you today with an attitude of thanksgiving. We are so grateful for all that you have done for us and for your deep, deep love, that you love us in spite of ourselves. Love us. You forgive us. You set us free to live life to the full now and forever. And so, Lord, we come before you and we say thank you. And as we share around this table in a moment, would you draw us closer to you and strengthen us to go out and to serve you? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.